The Holy Gospel for this last Sunday of Advent comes from Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our creator, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I am quite sure that I have told you this before, but even if I haven't or you haven't heard me say it, it will probably come as no surprise to you to hear that I own a, let's say, healthy number of nativity scenes. I was on the phone with my six-year-old great-nephew last week, and he asked how many of them I have. And I said, a lot? And he said, that's not a number. And I said, too many? And he said, that's not a number. And I said, more than 10. And he laughed and laughed and said, that's ridiculous. (laughs) You are correct, Jonah. It really is. I've collected them over the years, mostly from travels, other people's or my own, and from fair trade stores, my other favorite place to get them. There's an olive wood one from Jerusalem. There's some small clay sets from Nicaragua and Guatemala and Italy and Spain. There are a couple of wooden sets from Germany and Indonesia. And there's one from the Philippines where each figure is made out of carefully crafted, very thinly rolled Um, pieces of newspaper. Each year we unwrap all of them and we set them around the house counting out the characters. There's Mary, there's the baby Jesus, there's the wise men, there's some kind of animals, there's a stable, sometimes there's camels if you're really lucky. But for many of them, almost all really, there's always one last question, two figures left. Which one is the shepherd and which one is Joseph? (laughs) They usually look the same. They're wearing robes. They sometimes have some kind of staff. They often have sort of a kind, gentle look on their face. If you're lucky, one of them will have an actual sheep stuck to it. And that's really the only way that you know. It's a handy giveaway. Otherwise, you're left with these two and you just kind of have to decide. This year, you're Joseph, I guess. Joseph is frequently overlooked, and not just in nativity scenes, but in the story itself. 
Most of the details that we associate with the Christmas, Christmas story come from the Gospel of Luke. The angels announcing of Mary's pregnancy, her song, her Magnificat, which we just sang together, that song of joy and reversal of the world. The couple's trip to Bethlehem to be counted and properly taxed by a greedy empire. The birth of their child in a temporary shelter that they just kind of had to find and the baby in the manger, the skies full of angels and the shepherds abiding in the fields, watching their flocks by night. All Luke. In that story, Joseph is around, but mostly a silent partner. He's fully present, but we never get to hear him speak. Thankfully, though, we have four Gospels. Not just Luke, but Mark and John and Matthew, which is what our reading came from just a moment ago. And it's in Matthew's version of the story that we get to hear a little bit of what this experience was like for Joseph. He's betrothed to Mary, which was a significant agreement, this engagement, between two families. It really was a legally binding thing. It was not easily broken. But before they are officially married, of course, Mary announces to Joseph that she's pregnant. Now, as a good and righteous man someone who seeks to follow the will of God and the laws that have been given to him by his religious tradition. Joseph has really two versions of one choice. The choice is that he must dismiss Mary and not complete their marriage. He can either do that publicly, which will expose her to the accusation of adultery, potentially even the risk of her life, depending on how angry the crowd might be. Or he can dismiss her quietly, send her away, and try to move on with his own life. Now, to preserve his own honor and good name, it would be better for Joseph to make Mary's dismissal public so that it's clear he's not at fault for this unplanned pregnancy. But Joseph makes the more compassionate choice. He will dismiss Mary in private. He will save her from public humiliation. He will take the hit. His reputation will take a hit, but that's what he thinks is right. You can almost see the list of scripture passages that he's written down to explain his choice, and he puts it next to his bed, and he goes to sleep and figures that in the morning he'll have this conversation with Mary. Pretty much all the nativity scenes that I own and almost all of them I've ever seen are based on the Gospel of Luke. The setting, like this one right here on the altar, is always some kind of stable. There's a baby in a manger. There's two sort of bewildered parents trying to figure out what comes next and a variety of animals. The nativity scenes are always trying to capture the moment of Jesus' birth and the moments after that, because that's, in the story, what has largely captured our attention, for good reason. It's a truly amazing moment to say this is the moment that God, we believe, is born into the world. But birth is not the only act of God in this story. If we built or carved or whittled or painted or sculpted 
a nativity set based on the Gospel of Matthew, it wouldn't be in a stable. It'd be in Joseph's bedroom, I guess. And the angel of good news wouldn't appear in the sky, but inside Joseph's mind in his dream. And it wouldn't be the birth that marked the moment of God's arrival into the world. It would be the adoption. The yes that Joseph says. Just as much a yes as Mary's. He says yes to a child who may not be of his body or blood, but who will nevertheless fully belong to his heart. For Jesus to be Emmanuel, to be God with us in this world, we need both parts of his arrival. We need his birth and his adoption. Family is a complicated gift all year long, but maybe never more so than the holidays. That might be because there are so many commercialized depictions out there at this time of year about what families, happy families, are supposed to look like. Generally, it's contented children in their pajamas, happily, happily opening gifts on Christmas morning next to parents who appear to have gotten a full night's sleep, which is how you know that none of this is accurate. People gathered at dinner tables full of beautifully prepared food, which everyone enjoys equally and no one has burned. There are no awkward conversations about politics, no uncles who have had too much to drink, no arguments which started 20 years ago but never got resolved, no eye rolling from anyone, and the dog never throws up in the corner. <laughs> but it's not real. The good news of Jesus' birth arrives in the world, which is now, as it has always been, full of awkward, hurting, imperfect humans, frequently stuck in unhealthy and dysfunctional patterns, in homes and families that are full of joy and hope and arguments and grudges. Christ is born into a world of violence and hunger, of persistent racism and anti-Semitism and every kind of prejudice where we are cynics and sinners and generous and kind and cruel and gentle frequently within the span of 15 minutes. It can be so easy to think and feel that your family is not what it should be, not what you wanted it to be that somehow you're incomplete, that you're missing something about the fullness of Christmas, the real thing, because your family doesn't look like other families or doesn't look like you thought it would. And for that, maybe the greatest gift that Joseph gives us today is a bigger story about Jesus' family. Ancient theologians had a special word for Mary, a special Greek word. They called her the theotokos, a combination of two words, theo, meaning God, like theology, and tokos, meaning bearer, or one who gives birth. So Mary is this unique person in history. She's the God-bearer. She even gets her own word, and she should. But I wish they had come up with a special Greek word for Joseph, God-adopter, or something like that, because he is just as important 
in the face of just as much pressure to walk away from this story. His decision to say yes is just as radical. Every nativity scene needs Mary, but we also need Joseph. We need the birth and the adoption to tell the true story of Jesus' family. And not only that, if you go back to the first 17 verses of chapter 1, we read starting at verse 18, the first 17 chapters is a whole long list of names that is also full of diverse families. So in that list of Jesus' family tree, you're going to find Abraham and Sarah, who endured years of infertility and a sort of attempted adoption of their own before finally welcoming their son Isaac. You'll find Jacob, who cheated and betrayed his own twin brother out of a rightful inheritance, and then fled what appeared to be his angry brother's army of vengeance, only to be pretty undeservedly forgiven at the end. You're going to find whole lists of names which are mostly forgotten in the dust of history and largely unknown to you and me. Names like Nashon and Asaph and Manasseh and Salathiel. But who were nevertheless flawed, imperfect people living in their own flawed and imperfect families. You'll see Ruth, who was, whose whole family was her mother-in-law. They had virtually nothing in common, different religions, different nations. And her mother-in-law was bitter, full of grief at the death of her husband and her son. But she and Ruth chose each other over and over again, a family of choice. And they became just as strong, those two women, as any other family in the Bible. You'll meet David, a great king, and to be truthful, an unfaithful husband and Bathsheba, who was, at the end of the day, a victim of sexual assault, whose story in all its brutality reminds us that nothing we experience in this life should drown us in shame that we do not deserve. In other words, Jesus' family tree is just as messy as yours and mine. It's got loss and separation and tragedy. It's full of people who did not fit into the family ideals of their day, who were excluded in some way because of their gender or their poverty or their fertility or infertility, their failures, their doubts. It's full of families who never fit into a nice, neat story, but who somehow were all absolutely necessary, without whom we never would have gotten to Jesus. Those families were full of scandal and hurt and selfishness and generosity and hope. They're made of birth and adoption and friendship and marriage. They are home builders and refugees and rulers and farmers. They are single and married and widowed and young and old and everything in between. They are, in short, human. And every single one of them is just as important as every other one in getting us to Jesus, born of Mary, 
adopted by Joseph, praised by shepherds, gifted by wise men, surrounded by animals, announced by an angel, and born for us. Born for you and your family. However big or small, beautiful or flawed, healthy or messy, broken or healing, close or distant, ready or not, you are. That's ridiculous, we might say, like a six-year-old contemplating an endless supply of nativity scenes. It is. It really is. Thank God. Amen.